So Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. This is God's holy word. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord, their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And we'll end our reading there this morning. May God bless his word to us. Well, as I mentioned before uh, worship this morning, tomorrow uh, is the traditional day remembered as the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the great Reformation anthems is, or was, still is, Sola Gratia, by grace alone. And that anthem recognizes that everything we have is a gift from God. That's true physically and materially. Though we may plan and work and do many things, the stream of blessing in our lives must always be tracked back, traced back to the spring in the grace of God. For who makes you different from anyone else? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And that's true physically, materially. It is especially true in salvation. Sola gratia, by grace alone, is the heartbeat of the overarching desire of the reformers in the 16th and 17th centuries that everything would be solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. All of the other parts of the, the Reformation, the teaching of the Reformation rediscovered in Scripture tends toward, feeds toward that great anthem, that God would receive all the glory, soli deo gloria. That's where Paul ends up in Romans chapter 11 at verse 36. For from him and through him and unto him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Boys and girls, that word grace 
often means a gift, cadeau, a gift. And Jesus is described in the Bible as the indescribable gift to his people. The indescribable gift of God to this fallen and sinful world. We read in Ephesians 4 that Jesus himself gives gifts and he gives gifts of servants in the church. Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And in order to prepare a people for the coming of Jesus into the world, God gave the gift of this man called John. The gift of John. That name John, you remember, I hope, means God is gracious. God gives gifts. And he gave the gift of this man, John, that we are meeting here in Luke chapter 1. So today we're going to look at God's grace woven throughout these verses in Luke chapter 1. Last time we heard about John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, from verses 5 through 25 as a whole. But this morning today, this morning and this afternoon, a closer look at verses 13 through 17. And this morning, as you can see in your bulletins, the sermon is called The Gracious Gift of Children. The Gracious Gift of Children. These verses provide us with so many helpful, important truths about children in general. But then, Lord willing, this afternoon, we'll consider the gracious gift of John himself, which is, of course, the main purpose of Luke writing this account for us. Who John would be and what he was called to do and enabled to do by God's grace. And so this morning, from these verses, the gracious gift of children, uh, considered in three ways. First, the joy of grace. The joy of grace. Secondly, the need of grace. And then lastly, the giver of grace. Well, first then, the joy of grace. I hope you still have your Bibles open. If you look at verse 14, one verse there, verse 14, contains three different words for joy. Listen, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Joy is the obvious theme of this section and this verse in particular. The angel speaks of joy. Elizabeth would have a son, and he will be a joy to you. That's the most common Greek word for joy in the New Testament. But he doesn't leave it there. The NIV says, and a delight to you. That word is an an intensification of the theme of joy. It can mean, uh, it means exceeding joy or great joy. 
It's the word from Jude, verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That's the word here. Joy, exceeding joy. And then many will rejoice. Another word for joy, the verb form in the third instance. The joy of grace. The joy of gifts, and in particular, the joy of the gift of a child. Jesus says in John 16, 21, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Children are a gift. Psalm 127, verse 3. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward from Him. Children are a gift. The the first vow, baptismal vow of our church here, asks parents, do you believe this child is a gift from God and trusted to your care. We always need to remember that. The gift of children and the joy of that gift. I started reading recently the autobiography of a woman named Jeanette Lee, a Chinese Christian woman who is connected with the Reformed Presbyterian mission to China there in the years before 1949 when they were ejected. Her father wanted a son, like so many others in that culture. And then she was born. If the grandmother had been alive, Jeanette Lee wrote, the baby would have been cast out to die. The nurse advised Jeanette's father to send her away to an orphanage. But he told her mother that they would keep her. And Jeanette's mother replied, Your words have saved me the grief and sorrow I feared. Of every ten girls sent to the orphanage, nine are soon dead. But this child is our precious treasure. The father named her Jasmine Bud, translated into English. But sadly, even in her joy, the superstitious mother thought that that name would draw bad attention from evil spirits, who are very superstitious boys and girls. And so she called her Zhao Ya, ugly crybaby. The joy of children. Our culture is increasingly anti-child in many ways. Abortion is called by some a great Canadian tradition. I heard that language several weeks ago. By most, it's considered a Canadian right, a human right, to end the life of another human being. 
Recently in Canada, we've witnessed the Every Child Matters movement. And we agree. We say amen. And at the same time, we are staggered at the inconsistency of our culture. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. I read those verses in Luke's gospel with a family this past week in our congregation at the birth of their son, and we rejoiced together. The joy of a child. I think we should point out helpfully that at the end of verse 15, it speaks of uh, something being true from birth. Literally, the Greek says, from his mother's womb. That can mean from birth, but in light of verse 41, later in Luke chapter 1, with the, the baby leaping in the womb, I think from the womb is perfectly appropriate here. The New American Standard Bible translates, while yet in his mother's womb. The Old Testament law recognized the unborn. Psalm 139 marvels at God's handiwork of the pre-born. And we need to remember uh, when life begins, the gift of children. But boys and girls, often, you know, church services and sermons, you might think this is just for big people. Well, here's something for you to hear. You are a gift from God to us. You're a gift from God, and we rejoice in you and and with you. We rejoice. We're exceedingly glad. We want you to know that from God's word. We're thankful for you. You are gifts from God to your parents and to us all as a congregation. Many will rejoice at his birth. And we do rejoice. Baby born just this past week. Other moms soon to deliver, we we hope and pray. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice, and we do. But that verse, rejoice with those who rejoice, goes on, doesn't it? And mourn with those who mourn. We need to remember the the necessary other side of the coin, as it were, of joy. The very joy of birth that we're reading about here in Luke chapter 1 means as well at times the sadness of miscarriage, the heartache and heartbreak of stillbirths or infant deaths. That's not as common today as it has been in history. Martin Bucer, who is really an overshadowed reformer, we don't hear his name very much, He was a Dominican monk, interesting because Tetzel, who sold indulgences, was a Dominican monk. 
Luther was an Augustinian. But Martin Bucer listened to Luther and became a Reformed pastor, a Protestant pastor in Strasbourg. Eventually, he taught at Cambridge University in England. His first wife was named Elizabeth as well. She had 13 pregnancies and deliveries and only one son survived childhood, a son who had mental and physical special needs. Thirteen births, one son. It's not as common as it has been in history, perhaps, but it's common enough, yet maybe not talked about enough. How often does the subject of a miscarriage come up in a sermon? As I was preparing this message, I saw an article about Taylor Swift. I don't follow her. I couldn't identify her song if I heard on the radio, her songs. Uh, She produced uh, an album recently, Midnight's, I think it's called, and then after the release of that album, some other songs at 3 a.m., I think it was released. One of the songs is called Bigger Than the Whole Sky. And that song has people thinking and talking about miscarriage. Mums writing in saying, your song is helping me deal with my own miscarriage. That really struck me that there is a popular singer sings a song and people are so thankful that the whole topic can be out there and discussed and they, they can work through it. And it just made me think how much more that should be true in the church. How much more in the church. Not always, I know, for public announcements or for prayer meetings, but for moms to know if this has been your experience, you're not the only one. Don't be afraid or embarrassed to speak to other women. Older women. There shouldn't be things in life that we don't talk about in the church that happen to us where we can talk about it. There are great joys in the gift of children, but we live in a fallen world and death has entered through sin. And so even in the joy of the birth of children and in other circumstances where there is sadness, we need to always remember, secondly, the need for grace. The need for grace. There's the joy of grace that we see here in verse 14. But there is the need for grace. The angel Gabriel teaches such an important lesson in verse 15. As he speaks specifically about John, but the lesson is for every parent and for all of us as individuals. Verse 15, 
for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. There are so many things in these verses for us. Gabriel didn't simply say he will be great. Most parents think their children are great. Grandparents think that their grandkids are great. Great grandparents really think great grandkids are great. Many people have been called great in human history. Alexander the Great, in the days of Herod, who was called the Great. Charlemagne, what does that mean in English? Charles the Great. Wayne Gretzky, the great one. Shakespeare famously said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, some have greatness thrust upon them. The world has always known its great men and women, Catherine the Great. We have our own ideas of greatness. We may think ourselves pretty great. Or quite the opposite. We may think we're so ungreat. So not special. Even total failures. But what does the angel say? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. That's where the lesson is in the last part. Great. How? Where? Why? Great in the sight of the Lord. By what standard? Great in whose eyes? Great in the sight of the Lord. What a reminder that is for us. We often and easily just think about what other people think. We live by the smiles and frowns of society and friends and family. Now, in one sense, this, this truth, there, there can be a great freedom in this truth. A freedom from the fear of man. Paul spoke this way in 1 Corinthians 4. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human judgment. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. There is both a great freedom and a great concern when we remember that we all live before the face of God. The freedom is that the Lord really knows who you are. Not your grumpy neighbor, or your implacable boss, or whoever it may be, your fault-finding parents, whatever. The Lord really knows who you are. And there's a freedom in that, but that at the same time, is the great concern as well. The Lord really knows who you are. What a person is in the sight of God is what a person is. Someone once said. And so we think of this, the joy of this child, but then say, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Who are our children in the sight of the Lord? First, our children are image of God people. 
image of God creatures with a soul that can never die. Pastor Dick reminded us at the dedication service, 2 Corinthians 5.16, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. The world can think too little of children. They forget who they are in the sight of God. Image of God creatures. Some parents can think too little of their children. They can even... They can allow them and even encourage them to think and behave in ways that are inhuman or dehumanizing. God's word tells us what human beings are. Created in his image. Let us make man in our image and likeness. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Society and even parents at times can think too little of their children, but parents can also think too highly of children. We are the image of God, but we are also the sons and daughters of Adam. Our children are not innocent. They are not pure. Job 4.14, who can bring what is pure from the impure? Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, Proverbs 22.15. And Jesus said in John 3.6, flesh gives birth to flesh. Paul in Ephesians 2.3 says, like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. What does it mean to live in the sight of God? What does God see? He sees the heart. Do not look at his, up, uh, uh, at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What a snare it can be to live your life only concerned about outward things. What people see and what people think. Or ourselves to think that we're okay or good or even great because we compare favorably or compare admirably even with other people. Human greatness evaporates, it disintegrates in the sight of the Lord. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day, Luke 16. But God knew his heart. There was a farmer who was only concerned about building bigger barns. But God knew his heart. There are women in 1 Peter 3 whose beauty is only outward adornment. But God knows the heart. There are Pharisees who pray to be seen by people. But God sees the heart and Jesus says they are whitewashed tombs and inside are rotten bones. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but 
on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. We live in the sight of God. And Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. People come to church, come to a worship service, and so often the first question, the most important question that people come with is, what will people think? In one way or another, that's what we're focusing on. What will people think? We live our lives day by day like that on the other six days, and yet we can come on the Lord's Day into a worship service and still have that thinking. It's not right on any day. But today, here, that we would not for an hour think, who am I in the sight of God? Where else will we think it if we don't think it here? For all of us, the most important question always is, what does God think? And we don't have to guess. The Bible tells us, Romans 3, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Is it any wonder that the world hates the Bible when that's what it says about us in the sight of God? In the sight of the holy God, the only greatness we have in ourselves is that we are great sinners. Romans 7.18 Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, my sinful nature. Sir James Simpson was a doctor who discovered chloroform that helped anesthetize patients who were anticipating surgery. He was encouraged in his research after reading Genesis 2.21, God caused the man to fall into deep sleep before he took his rib. And that's a, hey, that's a good idea. And so he developed chloroform. Once he was lecturing, Dr. Simpson was lecturing in Edinburgh University, and he was asked by the students near the end of his, as he was near the end of his career and at the end of the lecture, what was the greatest discovery he had ever made? They were all expecting him, one writer says, to say the discovery of chloroform. But to their surprise, he said, my most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself 
a sinner. And in a very similar way, toward the end of his life, John Newton said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. John was great in the sight of the Lord. How? Well, as we'll see this afternoon, Lord willing, as a prophet, as a forerunner of Messiah, yes, that's true. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, Jesus said in John 7, in Luke 7. But even more profoundly, he could only be great because of, thirdly, the giver of grace. The joy of grace, the need of grace, and the giver of grace. Verse 15 again. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. What does this tell us? It tells us that the source of greatness, or in other words, the source of any good, And any blessing must be from God himself. It cannot come from us. It must be from God himself. And this mention of the work of the Holy Spirit reminds us of this great truth. As we rejoice in the gift of children, the gift that they need most, the grace that you and I need most is the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives the new birth. Truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God, said Jesus, unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. Truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The Spirit is the one who gives the gifts of repentance unto life and saving faith. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We give our children all kinds of gifts, but the best gift we cannot give, we must pray and ask for ourselves and for them. Luke eleven thirteen. if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Parents, pray. Pray. There are lots of courses on parenting. Every biblical Christian course on parenting should begin this way. Principle number one, pray. Pray, pray, pray. And then pray some more. Congregation, pray. We can have Sabbath school classes, boys group, girls group, youth group. We can have a hundred groups. Pray. Pray for the work of the Holy Spirit, the giver of grace. More than health, said Ryle. More than riches. More than honors. More than fame. And I'll add, more than friends or jobs or spouses. Pray for grace. 
Whatever we seek for our sons or daughters, let us first seek that they may have a name in the book of life. Said Ryle. I was so encouraged by a a particular brother's prayer at prayer meeting last week when we had our combined prayer meeting. I'm always encouraged to hear people pray, but there was one particular prayer by a brother at prayer meeting this past week that just really encouraged me. It was a beautiful prayer for our children. For our children. What do we pray? We pray, Lord, send your spirit for Christ's sake. The Holy Spirit comes in grace because of the work of Christ for his people, his life, his death, his resurrection. He is the ascended Lord Christ who sends his spirit of grace because he purchased grace for us. You know, as we think of the giver of grace, earlier we spoke of the sadness of losing a child. There is also often the sadness of not ever having a child. But this is where gospel spiritual reality brings real consolation and real comfort. I don't know if angels rejoice over the birth of every child. I I was thinking through this this past week. I suspect that they do, but I don't know. But I do know they rejoice over one sinner who comes to repentance. Paul could speak of himself as a father in the faith. And he could speak of Timothy as his son. There is a family over and above our physical families and relationships. There is the family of God. And it's in that light that we need to hear Isaiah 54.1. Sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. How many children do you have, parents? I know some families with lots of children, 12, 13 children. Maybe you're an aunt to 13 nieces and nephews in one family. How many sons and daughters do we have as Christians here in this congregation? It's wonderful. God gives grace in our relationship with the spiritual children of Christ. Jesus says in Hebrews 12, 13, Here I am and the children whom God has given me. We are surrounded by children. May they be the children of God and the children of the covenant of grace. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth, John says. And that's not his physical children. That's true for parents and for pastors and for a congregation. It is only the God of grace and the Holy Spirit of grace that can make children great not according usually to worldly standards, though that may happen. Paul says not many noble. He doesn't say not any noble. Sometimes we achieve greatness. Some of you children may achieve a greatness in this world. I don't know. You may. 
that the God of grace can make his children great, not according to worldly standards, but in his kingdom. What does that mean? It means to be great like John the Baptist, in the humility of grace. Later, John would say, he of Christ, he must increase, I must decrease. Or, as the NIV has it, he must become greater. I must become less. If we're truly great in God's kingdom, we will be greatly humble people. You remember that time in Luke 9, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Shouldn't be. Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus. The humility of grace, great in the humility of grace. And lastly, and with this we'll end, great in the service that is motivated by grace. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Who's the greatest Christian? The greatest servant. Because our goal is to be like Christ. And he came not to be served, but to serve. May we be great in the grace of Christian service. Thinking through these verses, I found myself praying that my own children and that this congregation would be great in the sight of the Lord, in humility, and great in service. And that will only happen if we are great in the grace of Christ. Sola gratia, soli deo gloria. May what was said of the apostles in Acts 4.33 be true of us and our children and our children's children. And great grace was upon them all.